Well, hey there. Welcome to Just to Be Nominated, a podcast about movies distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter for multiple decades, who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared McNett, a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa, and me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee. This week, there are a few interesting movies to get into, ranging from the Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, which is in theaters as well as on HBO Max, The Guilty, an adaptation of a Swedish thriller set entirely in a 911 dispatch center, which is on Netflix, and Diana the Musical, which does exactly what it says on the tin and also hits Netflix today. This is also the first of five episodes that we've got set for October. So we're using the new theatrical release Venom, Let There Be Carnage, as a springboard to talk about our favorite examples of the body horror subgenre. Then finally, we take a look at the latest movie news. You can find links to all the movies we talk about in the show notes, along with links to our social media, etc., to see what we're up to and or contact us if you want to sound off in our DMs. Do you like the show? We hope you do. Tell your movie-loving pals and let us know what you think in the review section of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. I'm, I'm ready to go this week. <laughs> Good. Well, it's your week. It's horror week. Tour month. Oh, well, now, wait a minute. Let's not get greedy. You can't have it all. Oh, yeah. No, this is the whole month. But we have five weeks. Five weekends of of October. It's not every year that we get that many weekends. Oh man! Just solid, leaf turning, spine shivering, boot shaking horror opportunities. What What do you think it is in you, Jared, that likes horror films? Uh, I think part of it is because I was afraid of them as a kid. <laughs> I really do, because like. Yeah, because, and I know I'm not alone in that. I've heard, like, plenty of other people that, like, are big into horror movies as adults that were, like, terrified of them as a kid and didn't want anything to do with them. Like, to the point where, and I think I've talked about this on here before, but, like, when I was a kid and would, like, go to Blockbuster and stuff, and I would even just see, you know, the artwork for, like, the horror movie section stuff, I would, like, run away from them. And, like, I would then have nightmares about them later on just based on, like, the cover art of stuff. That is a very interesting aspect of the film going experience that is gone. Um, and, you know, with Netflix and Netflix primarily, but also Hulu and HBO, all those. Um, I know Netflix does like A, B testing on the images that they serve up to people related to films to see which is going to be the most likely to cause somebody to watch it. And, you know, that's not necessarily going to get you to watch Ghoulies 2, you know, because it's got, <laughs> you know, a couple of weird green guys with teeth, you know, climbing out of a toilet. Sometimes the box oversold the movie. You thought these people should be, they should be creating the script because they had more things in there that you could find on this kind of haphazardly made film. For sure. Well, I guess speaking of movies and, and the like, what have you guys been uh, been watching lately? Anything good? I finally got to Tammy Faye. Yeah. Speak. I think it did her justice. 
Um, I don't think you come away from that thinking that she is one of the bad guys in all of that world. Um, and I think it does show that she has a heart that has been basically ignored in a lot of that televangelism stuff that we see today. And maybe that's what they need because it looks like an awful lot of greed is out there. And I, as much as she liked all of the trappings that came with that success, I don't think she was the one pursuing it. And I think she would have been just as happy living in Minnesota as she was living in Heritage USA. Um, Jessica Chastain probably was miscast, but she did everything she possibly could with the part. And I don't fall, you know, I, you can just see in little things where she could have goosed the makeup and made Tammy maybe look a little more like what we remember, but she was respectful and she pulled back on some of that stuff. And she wasn't, she wasn't a caricature. She was more a character. And I think Andrew Garfield nailed Jim Baker's voice. It's absolutely on target. I don't know about any of the other things, but the voice is just there. And then uh, Cherry Jones is fun as, as Tammy's mom. Chris, you nailed it last week when you talked about the, the set dressings and all that kind of stuff. It is exactly that 80s era look that you would see in probably how many Holiday Inns um, or whatever, where it's a lot of mauve and powder blue and whatever, where you go, oh my God, it's like we're in that period. They did a great job of, of capturing that. So I enjoyed it. I don't think it was a well-made film because there are a lot of issues that I think they could have wrapped up. And I do think if they had shown the end when she had an interview with uh, Larry King at the end, I think that would have been a real telling capper. Yeah. That's what I watched. I mean, it's certainly a, an interesting movie. I mean, you, you didn't have to be a big fan of theirs or you don't have to be somebody who is even mildly interested in it. It's a fascinating kind of slice of life that because of the distance we have, you can go back and go, oh my God, look what was going on at that time. And maybe we didn't pay attention. So that's my two cents. How about you guys? Jared? Uh, well, on Sunday, I saw what, uh, other than Pig, might be my favorite movie I've seen so far this year, and that's uh, Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, which has an incredible cast. Um, Oscar Isaac finally gets to stop doing Disney stuff for a little while and actually act again, which is nice, because he's an incredible actor. Like, he's, he's one of my favorites when he's in stuff that actually makes use of him, like, you know, Ex Machina, or of course, you know, Inside Llewellyn Davis, or, you know, of course, I've talked before about Drive, and he's fantastic in that. He's great in the card counter as this uh, guy that basically has chosen the bleakest possible version of a gambling life I think I've ever seen in a movie. There's nothing remotely glamorous about like his role as like a gambler in the movie. He just kind of floats from like one dead like Midwestern uh, town casino to another. And like he, his winnings are kind of modest throughout. And like the people he interacts with are all also kind of bleak, including uh, Ty Sheridan, who we need to talk about the fact that that guy's career is just insane. Like the first movie he was ever in was Tree of Life. And he's been in, you know, Mud and Joe. And he's been in a lot of other good indie movies. He's been in huge like box office stuff. He's great in this. 
Uh, Tiffany Haddish, like, does the best dramatic work that I think I've seen her do. It was an absolute delight uh, seeing her in the card counter. And then, like I said, it's a Paul Schrader movie. So the, the script and, you know, the writing and everything is as good as you're going to find anywhere. And, you know, as with, like, Taxi Driver or First Reformed, it's very much about, you know, God's lonely man, as, like, Paul Schrader likes to talk about it. Just this very alienated dude who has chosen this like own particular purgatory for himself. <laughs> Tiffany Haddish has been on TV uh, talking about the sex scene she had to do. It wasn't very like explicit or anything like that. It wasn't like uh, like some earlier Paul Schrader stuff, maybe like hardcore or uh, what, like American Gigolo or Cat People. Uh, a little a little more toned down of a, uh, a sex scene than stuff he might have done earlier on in his uh, career. You're skipping over the canyons. Yeah, that too. My bad. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> the famous uh, Lindsay Lohan and uh, uh, James Dean. How did I know? <laughs> I didn't know you were going to be the one to jump <laughs> That was quite a, a cause celeb as it came out. And it's like, really? Well, I remember there was a, there was like a big profile of him around that time that came out in Esquire, I think, where somebody right. was like on set and it's him, uh, it's Schrader, you know, trying to coax Lindsay Lohan into this like nude scene and she's just being this absolute, you know, prima donna. It's just like everything about this is profoundly creepy. <laughs> These are the kind of things they make movies about then years later. People should definitely go see uh, The Card Counter though. Because like I said, it's uh, an incredible Oscar Isaac performance. I definitely think he should get uh, nominated much like Ethan Hawke did for uh, First Reformed and um, it's pretty impressive to watch like Paul Schrader have this great of a comeback after he pretty much spent a full decade kind of in the wilderness because he made a terrible prequel to The Exorcist he made The Canyons which just got made fun of by everybody he had like that movie two movies with Nicolas Cage one of which didn't get released as he wanted it to be and now he's had back-to-back -back movies that are very much worthy of awards to change gears drastically. <laughs> like everything that I've been watching is to kind of prep for either like this week's episode or coming weeks, you know, diving further into other people's catalogs and producers, writers, directors, whatever, all that stuff. So I don't necessarily want to talk too much about that, but I will say it's not something I've been watching, but I've been reading the Flintstones comic book that came out three or four years ago. I think there's like 12 or 13 or some odd issues of it. And it's written by a guy named Mark Russell, who he just like scaled the entire idea of the Flintstones down and has been, it basically uses it to push all of these very subversive notions of, of you know, like the roots of civilization basically and, and religion and society and morals and, Anyway, it's, um, there's a whole lot going on with the Flintstones that you would not expect. And it's really, really well done um, in the way that it uh, packages the, you know, kind of fascinating ideas about, yeah, I mean, just, I mean, humanity. I mean, like, it, it really is, it, I mean, I'm like six or seven issues in so far, and it's managed to wrestle a lot of complex philosophical topics and 
in a way that is entertaining. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just very great. Do they look like the Flintstones? Yes. It's not as cartoony. It's more humanistic, but everything is exaggerated in, in a cartoony way, but not in the, it's got a lot more, you know, humanistic details, I guess. And this is relatively new? This came out like a few years ago. Okay. I've never heard of it. I'm excited. I would say the Flintstones comic book has been uh, just been, been a real joy to read while I'm not watching movies for homework. Admittedly, great movies, don't get me wrong, but I do have a movie that I can talk about that will lead us into the next thing. Um, I, I watched the Swedish version of the film, The Guilty, which came out in 2018. It's directed by Gustav Marler. And it is a pretty simple, simple little story about a kind of disgraced police officer who's on desk duty at a police or at like the, the Swedish version of 911. And he ends up getting a call that is from a woman who is being kidnapped. And then from the, from his position at the 911 thing, tries to solve this whole problem and you end up finding out a lot more about the reason why he's on desk duty. You find out a whole lot more about what's going on in, in this kidnapping. And it's, it's got a lot of twists and turns built into it. So that's from 2018. It is on Hulu. And then it was remade by Antoine Fuqua. Coming out today. Coming out today, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. And it's the same thing, basically. They're the... 99% of it takes place entirely inside this 911 call center. The one of the larger differences, I guess, is that it takes place in LA and in the, the new version, which is on Netflix as of today, there is this added pressure cooker element of a wildfire creeping in. So all of the in any you know exterior nature shots, whatever, from you know, have like the city skyline and then behind it's just ringed with fire. Um, and it's as a adaptation, I think it's really interesting. Mm. The, the script for the, the Fuqua version is by Nick Pizzolatto, who cr created and wrote um, the True Detective for HBO. So everyone's going to remember him from that. He's done a handful of other you know, hard-boiled crime type things as well. And he basically lifts the script almost like about 80% of the script from the Swedish version is left intact. And the changes that are made are not ones that I would necessarily agree with. I definitely feel like the, the Swedish version, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm going to get dinged for being pretentious here, but the Swedish version is, it's just a better film. It feels... Um, it's executed and paced in a much better way. Now, is it like the call, the thing that Halle Berry did? Because she was kind of on the hot seat there trying to juggle all these kind of things that were coming in. And uh, I would assume that's kind of Jake's thing because he can do really good eyes. He's real good at kind of looking terrified or uh, horrified or whatever it might be. Yeah. Another difference between the two is that the, the main character in the Swedish version, played by an actor named Jacob uh, Sedergren, 
And the way that his performance kind of ratchets up as the film goes along is nice and steady. Whereas Jake Gyllenhaal starts at like a normal level and then jumps up like way too many notches and then Mm. just kind of tries to kind of keep going from there. (laughs) And it's very much just a fascinating adaptation. And, and again, I mean, I just, some of the changes that were made to, to go into any detail would be to reveal too many like third act things that I don't want to get into. It's just a, a, they're the never ending quest for content for something like Netflix. So they look what they can adapt and they're not really looking to redo anything, just get the content out there. I mean, and this is also a very COVID friendly film takes place in one setting. You've got, you know, a grand total of like, I think three people that are in the room at any given time with Jake Gyllenhaal. Every other voice is on the phone. And to kind of go into this, I rewatched some Antoine Fuqua stuff and The Guilty definitely plays into a lot of the very complicated portrayals of American police that he is maybe not obsessed with, but he's, he's not afraid to really lean into, you know, the, the real grimy underside of the way that police in, you know, specifically inner city LA uh, or in Brooklyn's finest as well, you know, deal with problems (laughs) in a way that is uh, not ideal. (laughs) And this definitely has elements of that, but you don't, it's not as vivid, obviously. Which um, speaking of uh, like grimy uh, police movies in uh, LA and also uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, if anyone hasn't seen uh, End of Watch from uh, 2012, supremely uh, underrated uh, crime movie from the 2010s. I would absolutely agree. Yeah. End of watches. Yeah. I mean that it's yeah, incredibly good. And also it's got um, Michael Pena in one of his first really dramatic roles. I think he'd been doing a lot of comedy before then. And man, Michael Pena, we don't talk about him enough. Great actor. As a planet, we do not talk about him enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming that neither of you saw Venom, Let There Be Carnage. No. No. You know better. (laughs) No, one of the things coming up is a filmed version of the Diana musical about Princess Diana that hasn't even opened yet. What they did was they filmed it during rehearsals and they're letting the film out before they actually open the the show. This will be a real test as to if those things do well. It could be real fascinating. And British um, directors are leaning in a lot to doing this. Anything that's over on uh, stages in Great Britain, look for it to turn up on a uh, a streaming service over here because they see it as a way to make money and they're going to do it. I think there's a version of Anything Goes that's over there now, and they're filming that one for um, for display, you know, everywhere. And it has Sutton Foster, if you know her from. She's in this, the series Younger, but she's been on Broadway for a long time. She's in that. And um, so it'll be interesting to see what this Diana looks like. You know, it could kill the show if people watch it on Netflix and then say, ugh, 
We don't want to see this live. No way. It could kill the show before the show even opens. And, uh, and that's on Netflix as well as of today. Yeah, that's a starter. So we'll see what that does. But it's an interesting kind of check of this, this whole new world that we've entered. You know, where is it going? What's going to happen with all of that? Yeah. The Adams Family 2 starts today, too. So if you're a big, if you are a big fan of the uh, Flintstones, I bet you go for the Adams, too. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know if that's going to have uh, as much subversion. Uh, but, you know, I... Jared the hit. He likes it. Of all the, you know, horror things aimed at children, I mean, that's certainly one that has a lot to say about married life, I guess we could say, and healthy... Yep. Mature adult relationships. <laughs> Those two, man, I mean, that, that is some real intense couple goals right there. <laughs> I, uh, I dressed as Gomez Adams for uh, Halloween one year. Did you have a Morticia? I mean, that's the immediate question. Yes, I did. You had to, yeah. Did you get lots of candy? Uh, no. I had a good mustache did for it, though. Okay. Well, yep. I would be Pugsley. So if you need me, I'll be Pugsley for you. <laughs> Jared, I know you've got a question here in the uh, in the Google Doc about the Many Saints of Newark, the yes Sopranos prequel film. At least the earlier trailers and stuff I know for the Many Saints of Newark, it was obvious it's a Sopranos prequel, but they didn't play that up quite as much as they are now with like the marketing and everything. And if this does turn out to be a pretty big hit with HBO, however they measure that anymore. I do wonder if there's a world where we get more TV show like prequel or even sequel movies in the future. Cause obviously, you know, there's this, there was um, Game of Thrones coming out. It, yeah, there was a, the El Camino movie, obviously, that was a, the Breaking Bad um, sequel that was a movie on Netflix. And so I'm just wondering if there's a world where we start seeing even more of these like TV show. And there was the Deadwood one too. So that was another one that we've had in just the past couple of years. Downton Abbey is going to do it as well. They already did one Downton Abbey, didn't they? Another doing they another? Did. Yeah, they're using yeah. the real cast. They have another new one coming out with the real cast. But for a, a series series, they're doing um, prequels. And I think it's because then you don't have to worry about negotiating high prices with actors because you get unknowns to play these parts and it's just cheaper. With the Many Saints of Newark, obviously you have James Gandolfini's son who's in there playing the young version of him. And he's, he's really good at it. I was really surprised the movie is, like the first half of it is pretty much just about New Jersey for the most part. Uh, you know, the 1967 uh, riots, I mean, going, you know, all the way back, like even before that, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it tells a lot more of the family history and some of it a little bit confusing because Ray Liotta plays two characters who are, I believe, brothers. And Love it. it's a very strange casting situation. Do you feel you need to know The Sopranos to appreciate this or does it stand alone? You would need to have a basic understanding of Tony Soprano as a character and the dynamics between him and his mother and his sister and everyone, you know, kind of in, in his direct orbit. But I wouldn't say that you need to know the TV show, uh, you know, 
verse. What's the, uh, you know, chapter, chapter and verse. verse. Yeah. You wouldn't need yeah. to know, you wouldn't need to know the show chapter and verse to, to appreciate it, but at least having a casual knowledge of the first, at least the first few seasons, you know, roughly are, is more or less necessary. So and it, it, I assume it, it rewards you if you were a long time fan of it, where you see things, you go, oh yeah, look who's there. It doesn't fade to black. I'll say that. Okay. <laughs> Good. So I know that we talked about Venom a little bit earlier. Our staff picks of today is body horror. And uh, I don't know, Jared, I know you're a big fan. Um, <laughs> body horror. We are so Jared. We are so Jared. Here we go. Let's hear all because you know I hate every bit of this. No, I'll let uh, I'll let Chris start. Go for it, Chris. I mean, we'll we'll save Bruce for last because I'm sure he's got a <laughs> he's got a real corker. Um, <laughs> uh, the the one that I'm going to go with is Dead Ringers, the Mantle Brothers. It's uh, David Cronenberg from 1988. When you talk about body horror, it's impossible to not have David Cronenberg within the first group of things that you talk about. But I feel like Dead Ringers is not not talked about as much as some of his other movies, The Fly, Videodrome's another one. But uh, yeah, Dead Ringers stars Jeremy Irons. And Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons and Jeremy Irons as twins, Beverly and Elliot Mantle, who are gynecologists. The mantle retractor. There's this creepiness, weird symbiotic relationship that they have together. And there's a drug addiction that runs through it and kind of bounces between the two of them. It's, it's hard to go into a lot of details without getting really unseemly, maybe, but... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, one of them ends up making gynecological devices for mutant women is what it's called. And I mean, it is, it's gnarly. I mean, it really is just a bonkers film that Jeremy Irons acts the hell out of. I mean, just does a great job. And the technically for 1988 to have two characters played by the same person and to have them you know, it's not just these one shots back and forth over the shoulder type things. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, scenes with camera movements around the two of them together. And I mean, it's seamless. Like at no point does it ever take you out, which again is technically astounding. That's one thing I love about Cronenberg stuff is even as gnarly as it gets, it never loses sight of like the performances. Cause like a lot of his biggest movies are really anchored by some incredible uh, performances like what you were describing with dead ringers i mean james woods is at his absolute apex and videodrome um you know of course goldblum is great in the fly and then you know vigo had his uh great run in the the movies that he did with cronenberg in the 2000s into the 2010s so it's like violent and uh, about like grotesqueries as those movies are like cronenberg's a good uh, director for actors too i think and I will say, I mean, for Dead Ringers, I think more than a lot of the other films that David Cronenberg is known for, um, Dead Ringers has, the relationship between the twins is, is twisted, but there is this, you know, tremendous intimacy. And the, something like Videodrome, which is 
all about the emotional distance and disconnection that people, you know, get from living vicariously through media. And I mean, that's only one of a million other concepts that are being, you know, kind of shoved through that film. But there, there is a, a real humanity to Dead Ringers in, in a way that, you know, the two of them connect to each other, the two twins. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's unique in that sense, but it's also grotesque in, in, in the classic way. Should have been nominated for Best Actor. Clearly, it should have been. Um, he did a great job. Um, I remember people at the time liking him because he'd been in a lot of masterpiece theater-like um, dramas. And they said, we've got to go see this one, thinking that's what they're getting. And it was like, whoa, you are in for a real surprise. And I must tell you, I have used the mantle retractor line on a doctor before. I said, is that a mantle retractor? And they don't get it. So if you want to scare a, a doctor, just say, is this a mantle retractor? And are you using it on me? I mean, maybe it's for the best that you didn't have a doctor who automatically got that, you know? But, <laughs> yeah. You never know. Well, I know, um, Bruce, you have to get out of here. I didn't know if you wanted to you go. Know, can I continue on your, your thread? Because I like the fly. The fly is really my, I, I don't go in the direction that Jared probably will, because I hate Saw. I hate all those kinds of films like that. But the fly was very fascinating in a very, I think, intelligent way, because you you saw where it was going, but you didn't know that it was going to go there. You could have just thought he was crazy. And this was manifesting itself in a different way. And Jeff Goldblum has never been better. He was really, really believable in that. Um, and because he's able to do a lot of nutty things, he, uh, again, it didn't stick. It wasn't like, this is what we know him for. Um, and I think for him, it was a way to step out of his comfort zone and do something that was really fascinating. Now, I, they've tried too hard, like just this last year when they did the Mike Pence fly on top of, um, uh, or the fly on top of Mike Pence's head as a Saturday Night Live skit, it fell flat because people didn't remember all of these kinds of things and enjoy what was created back then. But I think it's, a again, another one of those very fascinating things. And I think he goes to the right level. I don't know if you know the uh, artist Matthew Barney, but Matthew Barney does real bizarre kind of things that fit well in this world. Um, and he makes films about them. If you ever see Matthew Barney films, you'll see what I mean with this, where he creates cre creatures and they're doing goofy things and stuff comes out of people. And it re his stuff reminds me of that, but in a more um acceptable way and that's the fly for me yeah matthew barney if anybody ever wants to dig further into his stuff the series of films that he did is called the cremaster cycle and there's six of them uh only one of them has ever been released in any uh broadly consumable way they only play at you know art installation type thing i think the I, or wherever. Yeah, I think i saw him at the guggenheim in new york and they had they ran all the films and you sat in there you think how long do I stay in here? Does this end at some point? And then you got to see all of the set pieces they used for the characters. And it's fascinating, but it has no, um, you know, commercial application because people just think you're off the beam when you look at this stuff. He's obsessed with Vaseline. <laughs> and you were saying with, with, with the Guggenheim, I mean, there's one that I'm assuming was the screening of the one that you saw where it, moves around the Guggenheim because the Guggenheim is just that spiral right. going upwards and the whole thing is 
the film that he you know shot was just him going around and having all these different weird installations and musical elements that were set up in in the Guggenheim as this one-time thing but neither here nor there that is yeah Matthew Barney is completely I think Cremaster is actually a it's like the part of the the male body that like descends to determine gender or something I mean like it, it's yeah I mean it, he's the ultimate body horror maybe but maybe not horror he would disagree with that but I'm rambling so no more well let's get to the J-man I want to hear all about his fun stuff one thing I would add just as a tag on the fly like with the uh, dead ringers you know we were talking about the performances the, the fly also has a really good central like relationship I think in that movie like the dynamic between Jeff Goldblum and like Gina Davis especially earlier in the movie is like genuinely like romantic and pretty sweet and that's something you would not expect expect given what the movie like turns into but um i appreciated it for that my pick uh since we got a new halloween coming out later this month is uh something john carpenter related and that's uh in the mouth of madness from uh, 1994 which um is definitely body horror in a different kind of way and it even blends a little bit into psychological horror i'll, I'll admit that um it's basically about a man going insane like in the most harrowing way possible too. It's uh, Sam Neill as this insurance investigator who has to track down this like successful author of horror like books, basically like an analog for Stephen King. And as the movie goes on, he starts to have a complete breakdown and doesn't like at a certain point can no longer understand what's real and what's just like works of fiction from this guy's like horror books. And everything starts blurring together. And like I said, you're watching a man like go insane in one of the like more gnarly ways I think I've seen that in a movie. And that's what I really appreciate the movie for is you don't usually get this intense of a, uh, a version of someone going insane. What about all those greasy ones though, like Saw? I do like those. And uh, uh, it was tempting to, to maybe pick one of those, but I like In the Mouth of Madness a lot and it doesn't get a lot of love now, even for like Carpenter movies. And so wanted to wanted to spotlight in the mouth of madness, I think. <laughs> what would be a good, a good commercial entry level film for us? For body horror stuff? Yeah. Probably, probably any of the Cronenberg stuff we talked about. I think the fly is as good of one as any. I mean, I'd say maybe the thing is probably yeah. one of the another John Carpenter entry into the conversation which we have talked about, you know, I mean, well, I'm sure that we've talked about that at some point in the past, but yeah, I mean, the thing with the, the effects in that film and the way that the human body and, you know, the body of dogs and other, you know, animals throughout whatever are uh, disfigured and kind of exploded from the inside out in, in a lot of ways is, I mean, just gnarly. But, and I'll, 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 you know, just kind of say, I think the, the Saw movies are body horror in, in one sense, but it's, it's not so much about the, the insides coming out. Like, I, I would say that that's much more torture porn than it is body horror per se. Like, I don't know, with the body horror stuff, I'm just thinking about, you know, yeah, just this. I don't know, like the, the organs, I mean, like the, the, like something that's really attached to the existential, you know, stuff that you can't see the idea of, you know, cancers growing or. Yeah. 
I think the key thing to it, which is why I picked In the Mouth of Madness, even though that's more about someone going insane, is that part of the thing with like body horror stuff is it's all about, which is going to happen to everybody someday, your body betraying you. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I hate to break it to you, Bruce. Then do you consider Alien part of this, this genre? Would that be... It has moments of that, obviously, with like the chest burster and stuff, but I don't know if those are all body horror or not necessarily. There's certainly elements of it. A lot of stuff in Jacob's Ladder, I would also say, counts as body horror. Or, I mean, even to kind of to kind of jump a little bit along, um, I wouldn't consider it body horror necessarily, but it's closer along those lines, especially with what Jared was throwing out with In the Mouth of Madness. I would say Synecdoche, New York, uh, in a way where... That that's movie, a slow. That's a slow boil. Yeah, body and like I mean, I saw that twice in the theater, and I think after the second time, I pieced it together. Of like, it it was a a horror movie where the you know the big bad in the horror movie, the villain, the slasher, or whatever, is dying alone and unfulfilled, and like not having established relationships, and like I don't know. There's like so many elements of that, which is way more frightening. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night um, than, you know, worrying about getting, you know, a home invasion or whatever, which I mean, also has been known to keep me up on occasion, but it's not the kind of thing that, I don't know, it did like, it just gnaws at you in a different way. But yeah. Any other last parting shots on body horror? I think we did it. (laughs) Bruce, you got any news? Do I have any news? What do I know that's new? You know, yeah, I don't I don't have any like headline breaking stuff. I am now digging deeply into documentaries because the broadcast film critics, the Critics Choice Awards, people have a uh, documentary award that they give out every year. And so I've been looking at a lot of documentaries and um, it's fascinating how they're reflecting the times. Very fascinating how you see the pandemic and things like that and how that's affected people. And it seems like a darker world than it was before. It's not just people climbing mountains or doing anything like feats of strength. It's digging into who we are and what we are. So that's what I know is just everything I know about documentaries. And you look at something like Val, which we talked about before, that's kind of a deep introspective look at somebody who seemed to have it all going and then was derailed. And I think that's kind of indicative of what we're seeing now. So they're very... They're very kind of harsh looks at subjects. And I think that's what you're going to see a lot of in the coming months. So that's what I've been up to. I, it's, not a news, it's not a news flash. I've got uh, one in particular, and uh, that is the, uh, I feel like I've been the one that uh, does a lot of the trailer stuff, but uh, the trailer for uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie, uh, Licorice Pizza, came out earlier this week. Um, and it's got a heck of a cast with um, uh, Cooper Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, son, which I think is the first movie he's been in. Sean Penn is in it. Uh, Tom Waits is in it. Bradley Cooper is in it. One of the Safdie brothers, who of course, did Uncut Gems and Good Time uh, is in it. Maya Rudolph is in it. And I can keep going and name more, including Ben Stiller and also John C. Riley. And I got to say, I saw the trailer for this and I was pretty indifferent watching the trailer the you know as soon as i heard like david bowie life of mars playing i thought you know seems like a little on the nose of like a musical choice to be picking for a movie like this about you know kids growing up and everything and the 
and the 70s. And I, I think when you're talking about artists that are on the level of somebody like Paul Thomas Anderson with any new movie that um, they put out, it is more than fair to ask either, is this breaking new ground for this artist? Or is this, you know, like a further refinement of stuff they've done in the past? And at least based on this trailer, I don't think it's either one of those things. I don't think this is breaking any new ground for him. And it doesn't even feel like a refinement of other movies he's made that are set in the 70s or about, you know, kids growing up in some way. And so I'm going to go see it. But this is the least excited I've been for a Paul Thomas Anderson movie since I really started caring about his movies. I haven't seen the trailer yet. It's one of those movies where I have a hard time jumping on the, the trailer bandwagon early on because I know that I'm going to see it. If it's a movie that I know I'm going to see, I just, I skip the trailer for the most part. And I should say, I don't think I'm being unfair with this either because like Paul Thomas Anderson famously cuts the trailers for his own movies. So he intentionally was like, this is what I want people to take away from this trailer for my movie. So I think it's more fair to judge his stuff on a trailer, which is still kind of ridiculous than it is with other actors or other directors. So what about you, Chris? What do you know? We touched on this, uh, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, Jared, I think this is one of your news items about uh, Halloween Kills opening both in theaters and on Peacock simultaneously, which you were justifiably worried was going to cannibalize some of the, the box office. I, I saw this news too, Chris, and I'm really annoyed by this. <laughs> yeah. So Jason Blum, who's the, the head of Blumhouse, um, you know, for, you know, has made untold gobs of money you know, doing all of these, uh, going all the way back to the paranormal activity and everything. Um, but he says he pushed Halloween Kills to streaming after the movie Freaky failed in theaters. I just recently actually watched Freaky and it's great. Freaky is a combination slasher film and Freaky Friday body swap thing with Vince Vaughn as the bad guy and Catherine Newton as the, the teenager. And uh, it's just, it's really well executed. I mean, it, it's a really inventive horror film in the same way that Happy Death Day kind of took a horror trope and then kind of mashed it through this other prism and came out the other side. Same director too, Christopher Landon did both, yep. So it's a bummer that the, uh, I mean, I, I plan on seeing Halloween Kills in a theater and encourage everybody else to, I guess, who's interested. But I also, I understand the sentiment but I mean, we're, we're in a really weird phase of pandemic film viewing where it can go either way. Something can do really well or it can absolutely tank. If this makes sense, I understand the sentiment, maybe a little bit of being nervous just about what box office will be, you know, right now during the pandemic still. I hate the reasoning that like because Freaky didn't do well, you know, that means Halloween Kills isn't going to do well because freaky is not halloween halloween is like the biggest franchise in the history of horror movies or or you know pretty close to it and if i remember correctly the 2018 halloween did gangbusters like for weeks and weeks like even like halloween night which was a couple weeks after the movie came out theaters were packed for that movie and so it's not in the same league as freaky so to think just because one of your other offerings didn't do well in the theaters that that I don't think that has anything to do with what Halloween Kills is going to do if it was only in theaters. I mean, I know it's not the same level, but you know, Shang-Chi was only in theaters and that did pretty well for, for Disney. I think 
studios that embrace that are going to do okay right now. Maybe not quite as good as they would have pre-pandemic, but they got to trust their product a little more. Do you think the discussion will be done now that Scarlett Johansson got a big chunk of change? Do you think they'll just say, all right, we, we're not going to hassle this. And if we put it out on streaming, we're good. I don't know. <laughs> all that that's going to do is, is affect the way that their contracts are worded, I think, and, and allow for, you know, you're, you're going to have to quantify revenue from, from streaming in a way that gives actors a appreciably increased cut. I mean, the, the upside with, with Halloween Kills, I guess, is that a third film has already been greenlit from my understanding. So the idea of them finishing this, this trilogy off is, I mean, assuming it's going to be a trilogy, it could go on for how, who knows how long, but um, you know, that that's locked in. So anyway, well, it's about that time. Jared, you want to send us out into the world? Look, I don't have a super clever one uh, this week. I got uh, too, too worked up about the licorice pizza stuff and the Halloween kill stuff. So I'll just say uh, go and uh, see something good. And in the case of this month, see something spooky. There we go. See you guys next week. So that is the end of the episode. Next week, we finally get to see the new Bond movie and a quote-unquote socially conscious slasher film, There's Someone Inside Your House, which hits Netflix. You can check the show notes for links to where you can stream the movies we talked about, discover older episodes, and find ways to contact Bruce, Jared, and myself as well if you want. The show is produced by myself, Bruce, and Jared, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope you enjoyed the show and are taking good care of yourselves out there. As always, thank you so much for listening.